This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by my co-host Simon Soon and our guest today, Lim Xiaoyun. Happy okay. Malaysia Day. <laughs> Happy Malaysia Day, guys. Malaysia Day. Welcome to the show. All right. Um, yeah, so maybe Lim Xiaoyun, before we start, can you just introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so I trained as an architect, but I specialize in architectural history and I'm currently a research fellow at the Malaysia Design Archive. And what are you working on? So I'm working on a project on Wawasan 2020. We're at MDA, so it's basically a place where we try to archive the design history of Malaysia. And I'm specifically trying to find materials and work on a series of events related to our sort of oncoming Wawasan 2020. Um, yeah, so in this episode, in conjunction with Malaysia Day, we're going to try to unpack a concept that is, actually, if you think about it, it's going to just be one year away, right? Wawasan Doplo Doplo. It's very scary. <laughs> it's, it's very scary, but it's, at the same time, it has been scrapped and has been replaced with a new vision, right, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, so recently, just um, in May this year, Mahathir announced Wawasan 2025, right? So, so it's not much, it's not so much that it's great, but it's more like it's deferred for yeah. another sort of like five years. Why do you think, what, what does this sort of like deferment mean for the vision? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I think Wawasan 2020, to me at least, is an idea, a dream that can never be fulfilled, right? It was this sort of all-encompassing vision that would encompass all aspects of life, from economics, psychology, etc., etc. But I think primarily for someone like me who grew up in this era of Wawasan 2020, it was primarily economic. So I think Wawasan 2025, really, it's just... I mean, it's ironic that he had to do that, obviously, but also that I think there's a certain kind of um, truth in this irony. Yeah, uh, maybe to help our sort of like listeners unpack this uh, concept of Wawasan 2020, can you sort of perhaps walk us through when did it sort of like begin, whose idea was it, and how did it come to embody the collective vision of a society? Yeah, so Wawasan 2020 was announced in 1991 by um, then Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, and it sort of set forth this idea that Malaysia would be a developed nation by 2020. And that developed nation, I think, is where, you know, we are here. That's what we're here mm. to unpack, right? What does being a developed nation mean and why is it so important to us? So um, what are the sort of benchmarks for you to qualify as being developed as a sort of like nation? Mm. Uh, the biggest thing for Mahathir was to achieve a specific GDP by the time 2020 came. That's an economic indicator. An economic right? indicator. Okay. And Malaysia would have, to, I think, grow, would, have, would have to grow its economy by 8% per annum. Mm-hmm. No, wait, sorry, 6% per annum and then later on was sort of revised to 8% per annum. And this is consecutive growth? La. Yeah, okay. this is consecutive growth, so year-on-year yeah. year growth. Mm. But, I mean, Wawasan 2020 then later was revised in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis by Najib. Uh, so this is very, very early on. And he said, no, Wawasan 2020, in the wake of the financial crisis, would have to be 2030. Um, well, I was on 2030. And then obviously um, in 2017, there was TN50, which was an attempt rather you know, direct and not subtle, in my opinion, <laughs> to displace what was on 2020 with Barisan's TN50. Um, and then, you know, obviously we all know what happened in the election and then TN50 was officially scrapped. Mm. So we're back to this sort of like, in this weird, ironic, historical kind of like continuum to Wawasan 2020, right? Um, or rather Wawasan 2025. But it's a specific vision, I think, that's very much rooted in the early 1990s. It's spatial, it's infrastructural, it's grounded in this idea of transport. 
So was was 2020 a true north for everyone? Do they use it as a guiding principle mm-hmm. when it was first created? Maybe one way we can sort of like go about this is to sort of do an exercise, right? Mm-hmm. All of us come from very different age group and we represent maybe sort of like three generations that have sort of like experienced this vision. Like <laughs> I'm 36 this year. How old are you? You're 29. <laughs> and you are? 23. 23. So like, uh, and I, as I, and if I know my math, if I do my math correctly, you were not even born when mm-hmm. 2020 was mm-hmm. sort of like announced. Am I yeah. right? I was eight years old and all I could remember was the stock market. People were talking about the stock market all the time. It was the boom years, right? Things were sort of like looking lush and everyone was talking about getting rich. And I think KL had a very different kind of like feel in terms of the possibilities and it's kind of like that sense of like the destiny that it's sort of like fulfilling, you know, a wealth that is completely unimaginable. Mm. Uh, yeah. That was my sense mm. of what it, uh, it felt like growing up in the suburbs. Where, 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 where? What's your entry point? My entry point for was something twenty was slightly a bit more different. I think I received a lot of exposure to it uh, when I was in school mostly, and I remember I think um, talking about was something twenty. At that time, we were told that was something twenty is the you know is the vision and it's very aspirational in nature, and we should think about working hard to achieve it. And, and I think for us kids at that time, we were sort of like a bit more influenced by the imagery of it, you know, and how how the promises that were sort of like made through uh, a lot of like murals that were drawn in, in you know, in our school walls, right? Uh, so, so um, yeah, I was a bit more fascinated by that, the fact that we're going to probably have flying cars. So these images were foisted upon you or did they ask you to imagine, were you collectively participating in imagining all these images through exercise, maybe art classes or uh, exercises that you were? Not really. Uh, I think maybe... maybe part of school. Maybe, maybe a bit of both. Maybe um, I think, because I'm not, so much into art but I think there were yeah they were whenever there's like an art competition uh, I think one of the themes was of course uh, was some 2020 right okay. yeah the, the future but at the same time I think it was also because it became a vision for us I think the school sort of like took up upon themselves to start okay let's let's draw let's draw a mural you know so mm-hmm. it sort of like became something that you know because you you're always in in schools, you know, you always walk past this couple of walls that will always have this kind of imagery, right? So subliminally, it becomes part of your consciousness as well, to a certain extent, right? You start thinking about what's well, something as this, like a very, to a certain extent, like, utopian and also very, very advanced, like a very modern, contemporary, you know, the image of flying cars, you know, monorails. And, and because I'm also not from KL, so 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 there's always that element of like, oh, okay, so this is where we're going to be in 2020, mm-hmm. which is which I find quite interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, so I grew up in Penang, which is, you know, relatively far away from the kind of like whole of this of KL as a sort of city and as yeah. an idea. So you, so you were born in 1997? I was born in 1996. Oh, um, 1996, yeah, okay. so the year before the crash. Yeah, I think this crash was 98? Uh, 90, 90, 90, 97, 97, and then the sack happened oh, okay. in 98, all the political turmoil. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, so I grew up, you know, having Wawasan 2020 kind of embedded in, again, my school life, right? So I went to a Chinese vernacular school, so medium of instruction was mostly in Chinese. But during assembly every week, one of the many songs that we had to sing, including the school song, including Nagaraku, was actually the Wawasan 2020 song. Um, so there was a kind of like embeddedness in our everyday life, right? I think it's kind of similar in the mural in that sense. When you are taught to imagine how to think about the future, you're taught to imagine how to kind of like position yourself in relation to an idealized um, place to which you are aspiring. Mm. Um, And Mm. I mean, 
to this day, the song the song has stayed with me. You know, in a way that Nagaraku has also stayed with me, and my primary school song has also stayed with me. It's so nice to sort of like hear from how the younger generation sort of like remembers what was in twenty twenty. But not that actually, I remember that much of it. And a lot of what I kind of like, uh, my better sort of like understanding of what it meant for a generation of people who sort of like come of age during that time was actually through secondhand stories. Uh, I've been hanging out with, like, you know, older people uh, later on in my sort of like adult life, principally those who grew up in the 90s or those who sort of like were uh, young adults during the 90s period. And their sort of like sense of Owasan 2020 is... I think much more rooted in also what they were able to make out of this sort of like vision, right? So the vision canvases a broad horizon and offers like a huge range of sort of like possibilities for them. But this is also when you have sort of like young people's, uh, you know, this was also a period where intense sort of like urbanization sort of like happened. We have an urban majority sort of like population by the early 90s. And uh, what comes out of that is that you have a lot of like subcultures emerging in KL. In the punk scene was uh, very active. Uh, you have you know increasingly artists trying to sort of like do stuff outside of this sort of gallery system. And so this kind of like ecology in which they think of uh, themselves as uh, much more sort of like cosmopolitan sort of like uh, figure connected to a global sort of like culture of rave parties to, uh, you know, the punk sort of like networks to sort of like contemporary global art sort of like biennales and discourses is, uh, is something that I think allows for a way to think about how people have were able to sort of like make the vision their own. Uh, so I'm like claim, own, claim certain sort of like ownership over that vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you're saying here that is that, I guess, what was in 2020 can also be seen through a kind of like flip side, upside down version. Right. Or it's is... sort of like history from below perspective, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you can see it for a vision from below. What would that vision from below sort of like look like if students sort of like go out there and then maybe ask the kids this one side and mm-hmm. maybe ask the others and think of the other kind of like cultural thinkers who were grappling with this issue of development, ideas of progress and really try to unpack and create, give some nuances to what this discourse really means. Mm. But did it resonate with adults? Right, Is that right. something worth exploring as well? Yeah, Have I you mean, come across any literature or any films or stuff like that, that? I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, it's Walsan 2020 is oftentimes meant, like, invoked as this kind of idea to which your argument or your sort of ideas can be valid, like validated almost. So I came across really just yesterday this book um, that was arguing for Malay to be the sort of medium for instruction in national schools. And this was a book published in the early 1990s. I believe it was 1993. And it was calling for a sort of like revolution rakyat as well as, you know, the economic revolution of what was in 2020. So when you look at the preface of this book, even though the rest of the book is just essays arguing for the importance of Malay, the beginning states, what was in 2020, you know, we have this vision of what the future will look like and um, we must do our best to achieve it. And it invokes 2020 as the reason why their argument makes sense. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a kind of way in which, you know, it is used as a constantly recurring truth. Um, to which everything in light of this can make sense. Mm. Um, but that was sort of in published by Asraf. Um, I couldn't find any. Don't know what I don't know what Asraf is, but I mean I think there was a, a, definitely among 
intellectuals and academics at that time, there was uh, a way in which it resonated. Mm, but the interpretations were still pretty much a bit different, right? A bit more subjective, different depending on the communities, how certain groups, you know, define yeah. it, right? I mean, they they use they use it as a compass, but they they use it to some extent to sort of like you know justify or yeah. shape whatever their goals. I think it's uh, accommodating time, right? enough to everyone <laughs> to the different stripes of sort of like ideology that then makes up this, this uh, conflicting country that we call Malaysia, right? Yeah, but it was never meant to be a, a uniform vision, right? Or was it meant to be a uniform, uniform vision and sort of like change? Well, I mean, I don't know whether it was meant to be a uniform vision, but the vision definitely called for uniformity, right? So the first point of Wawasan 2020, like, you know, there was a list of nine things. The first one is to basically create a, bang- a satu, satu bangsa Malaysia, right? So one Malaysian race. Mm. Um, and I mean, racial politics, as we all know, is very, very strife in Malaysia. So the idea of even kind of erasing the categories that we all sort of hold true today, coming from Mahathir Mohammed of all people, right? Um, in the light of like Malay dilemma, I think is um, worth thinking about. How did they propose to sort of like go about creating this this new racial category? To be honest, or, I... Or is it national? Um, uh, when you... The, the nice, the, the very delicious thing about sort of like the, the Malay word use of the word bangsa is that it slips conveniently between these two sort of register, right? Where on one hand it's race, racial identity, on the other hand it's national sort of like identity and it's never quite sort of like resolved. Hold those thoughts uh, as we have to make way for the ads. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baruddin and Simon Soon. And this week we're joined by our guest, uh, Lim Xiaoyun. And we're talking about Wawasan 2020. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned into Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin, and I'm joined this week by Simon Soon and our guest, Lim Xiaoyun, and we're discussing Wawasan 2020. Mm-hmm. One of the items mentioned in Wawasan 2020 was creating a Bangsa Malaysia, right? And that was pretty interesting considering how there's always been a complex issue that is so difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so was that a bit naive often at that time to aspire towards that considering that he was also at one point you know was quite quite nationalistic about right. about his view in when it comes to race I think it's a very tricky question right I yeah. mean if you want to think along okay. the lines of let's imagine for a second that we were the social Darwinist Mahathir in the Malay Dilemma who had pushed the NEP for you know many many years and like I think in that position one could reasonably think that by the time Malaysia had ascended the hierarchy of economics, ascended the hierarchy of, quote-unquote, psychological, you know, well-being, ascended the hierarchy of whatever else, you know, he had constructed in his mind, like, maybe that one of those sort of, like, steps on the ladder towards this imaginary pinnacle was also the idea of overcoming um, race, right? And I, I think... I think that's a very interesting idea to consider. Um, but how is this uh, going to be achieved? Is it through is it through intermarriage, or <laughs> is it through a process in which you become culturally assimilated into, you know, an ethnicity, uh, which means a sort of like group of people that sh- have a shared sort of like language and a shared sort of like cultural practice. Because uh, mm. those are sort of like two different sort of like thing, right? You yeah. Hear. One is genetically sort of like determined, or it's determined through um, a mixture of sort of like bloodlines. Mm. Uh, one is sort of like determined through you know a yeah. conscious adoption of practice, like social social practice. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that. I mean, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to explore that as well because I, I don't think it's that literal. 
at least genetically speaking. But <laughs> culturally, right. maybe, 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 maybe that was what he intended. I mean, yeah. I think that's also interesting to consider that in relation to Malaysia's dominant ideas of diversity, right? Mm. Like, we think of diversity in terms of similarity, right? Like, what do I have in common with the, the person beside me? Um, and there's always that sort of, like, beautiful, um, happy, idyllic image that, you know, back to kids who draw in schools, they are all, you know, these, like, kids of different colours, holding hands, united around the Malaysian country in a sort of circle. But then in the sort of like erasure, uh, there's sort of erasure of difference, right, that has to happen in order to reinforce similarity. So I guess the question of Bangsa Malaysia then is like, where where is that line, right? Right. Um, so maybe Mahathir is, uh, uh, does he sort of then see identity as sort of like socially constructed in the sense that you are able to sort of like cast off, you know, a previously sort of like prescribed identity in order to sort of like take on a new one that actually... Uh, maybe reflect a sort of like a reality that is more sort of like that more closely mirror maybe Benedict Anderson's of like concept of the imagined community that you do sort of like build affinity through an act of imagination a willingness to sort of like believe that you're part of this larger community. I would love to think that Mahathir has read Benedict Anderson <laughs> I really <laughs> hope he has <laughs> <laughs> yeah um was on didn't you? Do you think that it's also political in nature, or was it a sincere attempt at you know creating a vision for Malaysians to aspire to? Well, I, I don't know, but maybe the question of you know this Bangsa Malaysia can be sort of like answered through uh, the elaboration, the subsequent elaboration of this sort of like vision, right? In how it tries to aspire towards creating or fostering a society that's more sort of like caring, a society that espouses liberal democratic sort of like values, a society that is psychologically sort of like liberated. Uh, maybe these are sort of like markers for what he imagines or how he imagines that whatever that we understand to be a racial identity can actually sort of like be defined through these qualities. I don't know. I mean, that's my that's my most sort of like optimistic sort mm. of like reading of this. And I think if not for Mahathir and if not for all the politicians in Malaysia, people who do sort of like are exposed to Wawasan 2020 are in some ways sort of like fueled by this kind of like utopianism, this mm. kind of like utopian sort of like aspiration. No, I, I, I feel like... It, in, in, in its sort of like warp and in this very sort of like strange way, it did sort of like filter down to earth and it did sort of like spark that sort of like belief that these are sort of like possibilities as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing just to go back to this idea of whether it was political is that Mahathir was trained as a doctor, right? And I, I always like to think of Mahathir's politics as this constant sort of like diagnosis followed by the medicine and in this case, I think his patient is Malaysia, right? Like if the Malay dilemma was his diagnosis, then I think the NEP and what was on 2020 were his medicine, right? Um, one much more forceful, the NEP, um, the sort of like, I guess, chemotherapy in this sense, and then maybe what was on 2020 is in this case is our rehab. It is, I think, inherently political, right? It has to be read in terms of his politics. And I think its sort of extent, its reach, the very fact that we experienced it in um, the sort of like daily interaction we had with the nation through school, right, um, I think also 
goes to show how deeply political it was for Mahathir. Also, I think, I mean, there's something interesting what you said, Simon, that, you know, this idea of, like, caring for one another, right? It, it happens on the level of the one-to-one, right, mm-hmm. between the individual. And the ability for a vision to sort of, like, penetrate to that level, to kind of, like, be absorbed into our day-to-day life, I think, also goes to show that this was a diagnosis. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know what I was going to say to that, but yes, okay. I mean, as a rejoinder, it's a perfect rejoinder to sort of like what Lee Kuan Yew was espousing in Singapore in the 1980s in terms of the Asian value, the meritocratic sort of like system that's built into that whole Confucian sort of like culture of competition, right? And the comeback, at least not so much with Mahathir, but his then psychic, Anwar Ibrahim, (laughs) was that, you know, we can actually sort of like build a much more sort of like caring society through, you know, uh, various kinds of like initiative, whether it's through the Islamization of sort of like knowledge or uh, sort of like rethinking what the Asian Renaissance sort of like paradigm is and all these kinds of like, you know, abstract sort of like question. But on the ground and in, in reality itself, other things were fermenting, right? And there was also like, if change was sort of like happening, it also needs to happen on an economic sort of like level in terms of what it sort of like means uh, to generate sort of like wealth. And it also needs to happen on like an infrastructural sort of like level. And I wonder if we need to sort of like, you know, talk about address some of these things. Yeah, because I mean, uh, it was first introduced in 1991. And I think... Um, and development seems to be the key agenda at that moment in time. And I was like <laughs> thinking about that, you know, mm-hmm. establishing a fully caring society, you know, and as we progress, uh, I think the society becomes a bit more, uh, I guess, uh, divided in the sense that we become a bit more individualized. Yeah. So I find it quite ironic because of our economic development, I mean, how we develop economically, right, and how we become a bit more progressive, maybe economically, but at the same time, yeah. society, you know, if you want to look at society, yes, we, I mean, I agree that we do care for another on a one-to-one basis, but at the same time, I don't. Yeah. I as oh, another way to put it is you can't arrive at political office or power by simply selling this idea of being so socially sort of like caring. Yeah. So what is that economic sort of like buy-in uh, that Mahathir was able to sort of like dish out to everyone? You know, mm-hmm. as an architecture historian, I wonder if you mm-hmm. have anything to sort of like you know share. Yeah, I mean, I think Simon, you mentioned just now that Wawasan twenty twenty wasn't just a kind of like thing in economic reality, but also something that you could visibly observe. What primarily drew me towards wanting to study what was in 2020 was this idea of, you know, the sort of like linkages of infrastructure and architecture with this idea of development, right? So we have things like the monorail, the LRT, highways that are very deeply linked to a vision of what a developed nation looked like. Actually, the sort of one object that really turned my eye towards this, which I literally found in my apartment at home, was the book, the commemorative book of Bursa Malaysia, when it first moved to its new building. Um, so it basically re-narrates the entire economic history of Malaysia through the lens of architecture. So it looks at, you know, sort of like British colonial period, it looks at the sort of like architecture then, and then it moves forward, you know, obviously when the Japanese, during the Japanese invasion, it's just like, you know, this really like dark, smoky page um, that is sort of not talked about. And then when you get to the sort of like more recent years, and obviously the images started you know, becoming in color, and then you get a much larger variety of architecture. And then this all, you know, culminates in, you know, the founding of Bursa Malaysia and its move towards a new building. There's a sense of destiny to how capital is sort of like being, how, how, how they're able to sort of like rest capital and sort of like claim economic, you know, control over 
the wealth of this nation. Definitely. Is that, is that the narrative that was trying to sort of like tell? Yeah, definitely. And okay. I think um, then in the light of what was in 2020, then everything changes, right? The past can be rethought as this sort of like incremental journey towards a better future. But then also the future is something to which a clear vision to which we can always aspire. And I think the most sort of like physical means of it being achieved through architecture is, I think, what we most clearly could experience, right? Mm. Mahathir was no first developmental projects, which is, especially in the 90s. Mm. What are these like twin towers? Yes. Putrajaya. Mm. What other things? Kiel Tower as well. Kiel yeah. Tower. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. And these are the symbols that we need to visualize Vosan 2020, at least in its physical essence, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes abstract concepts can also be quite confusing for people to understand, right? right? And grasp through, right? Right, right, right. And it's yeah. also very vertical. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's, there's also an aspect of its horizontality, right? right. That people... Um, All oh, this subterraneanness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also, I mean, like, if you're thinking, if you're thinking about highways, right. you know, the LRT, the ability to move between one place to another in as quick a time as possible. And to connect. And, right, right. Yeah. I was just saying just now that, like, KLCC the towers were probably as important, and I would argue that they were as important as the LRT station that passed under it. Right? Mm. So KLCC exists not just as a kind of like physical place, but also as a node between one place to another. Mm. It is a connector, but also, you know, itself a place. Unfortunately, we, uh, we have to wrap things up soon. Uh, any last thoughts about Warsaw 2020? Do you want to reflect on what are the components that we have sort of like achieved at least? And I don't know how far away are we from, from you know, achieving Warsaw 2020 or even the, the new one, you know, the new version of Warsaw 2025? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess thinking back as a sort of like suburban kid, I guess built into this sort of like vision of sort of like creating uh, infrastructure that connects us to a global sort of like economy, uh, as neoliberal as this discourse is, is that it sort of like broadened the internet very quickly. It set up like pretty good sort of like facility that allows for relatively sort of like fast internet sort of like speed and connectivity. And that sort of like, you know, at the age of 13, having the internet changed my life. I would have become, you know, a Leo Club president or Interact Club president and go on and be become, uh, I don't know, someone like the, in the likes of Hana Yo, a politician or something, were it not for the fact that the internet has sort of like opened up all these possibilities of sort of like uh, introducing me to different peoples in the world, introducing me to different sort of like forms of literature, introducing me to different ways of sort of like thinking. Mm. What about you, Shane? Yeah, I think for me, Wallace and 2020 represents a kind of scale of imagination, right? Maybe not in the kind of way I will hope it stays with us. But I do think there is a kind of power in utopia. And on an individual level, I think there's a, for me, um, a willingness to dream and to sort of like picture yourselves in these um, alternate realities, alternate dimensions, flying car or not, right? Um, so, I, I mean, I think if there's one thing I take away from what was on 2020, it's definitely that. Mm. What about all the societal aspects, though? I mean, should we also think about that and when, how far we are away from from? Trickle down economy doesn't work. Newsflash! <laughs> 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 it's a lie. It's an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay. So let's end it with that. Okay. okay. Malaysia Day. <laughs> Malaysia Day.
<laughs> That's great. Okay, so you've uh, you've heard from uh, Simon Soon and our guest of the week, uh, Lim Xiao Yun. We've been discussing Wawasan 2020. Uh, share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can also write us an email uh, to bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Look for BFM Night School there. Thanks once again, um, Lim Xiao Yun and Simon Soon. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.